Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Benjamin D. Hopkins. He's an assistant professor of genomics and genetic sciences and oncological sciences related to cancer. He's the co-leader of the Functional Genomics Pipeline at the Tisch Cancer Center Institute. This is part of the uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. So we're going to talk about his work. So, Ben, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me, um, in the world of uh, cancer, what, what cancer do you, do you focus on? And then, you know, what's your specific research about? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a precision medicine specialist, I guess. Uh, and really, what we try to do is focus on cancers and, and tumors that where there are no standard of care treatment options. So the question we really want to ask is, what is the best drug or what would an effective drug be um, or combination of drugs be for for patients that don't have other clinical options. And so that can really range, you know, from in any type of cancer, but it tends to fall into the advanced cancers and metastatic cancer. And then there are a few tumor types where we really just don't have good clinical options like pancreatic cancer. So we spend a lot of time modeling those diseases where we really need better clinical options. So some cancers literally have no standard of care. I thought, you know, chemo, radiation, and surgery were the so, standard across all cancers. So we, we, yeah, we certainly, you know, like it's not that we don't try to care for all cancers, but for, so 20% of all cancers are quote unquote rare cancers. And so if you think about the way we run clinical trials, it's not that they don't have a standard of care. So I, I, I apologize, maybe I overstated that, but the, the standard of care is not custom to the cancer type. It's sort of what is used generally and is not necessarily effective. So particularly when you get into metastatic disease, patients have already exhausted their options, right? So if you've already, for example, in pancreatic cancer, taken fulfurinox or gemabraxane, which would be the frontline therapies, once you've failed on those or on both of those, the like if you are still you know, a candidate for more treatment, the options become very limited. And one of the problems is that just there are so few patients that have these advanced tumors, uh, you know, at that level of specificity, that running trials and finding effective treatments for them becomes very, very difficult. So really what we're trying to do is to, to personalize their care by modeling, you know, the individual tumors. And, and we can do that genetically as well as uh, using functional. Okay. So what, what are you modeling about the tumors? Are you looking at like the heterogeneity of the mutations or, you know, what specifically are you looking at? So what we do, like just in a practical standpoint is uh, from every tumor that comes into the lab, we will dissociate it. So we, we take the tumor apart into individual cells and then we grow those cells as tumor organoids. We try to give them a, you know, recapitulate the tumor microenvironment as best we can, you know, within reason. So we give custom media components to different tumor types to, to try to help them to look as much like the tumor from which they came. And so we grow those up so we can have, you know, hundreds or thousands of copies of the same tumor. And then we run dose response experiments, giving, you know, every drug that the patient um, may have seen or could theoretically see in, in a dose response. So as to assess how sensitive that tumor is to that drug. And then we can compare the relative drug sensitivities of each tumor to every other tumor we've tested. And, and in doing so, we can say, that 
you know, a given tumor is more or less sensitive to therapy. And we can compare the drug that the patient would normally receive in the clinic. So let's say in ovarian cancer, patients receive cisplatin uh, frequently, platinum-based chemotherapy more generally, you know, in cycles until they, until they don't respond at all anymore. And so we can use the relative sensitivity data from our models to try to suggest or, or to, to identify drugs that may be more effective in that, that context of recurrent disease. Well, you must have done this many times with many different drugs, I would think. What kind of patterns do you see? So that's actually what, what is really fun um, or, or, you know, mechanistically the, the most interesting part of all of this is that, you know, the, while originally tumors were sort of classified by their pathology, right? Like if you have a breast tumor, you sort of think of it as a breast tumor. We all talk about breast cancer or pancreas cancer or liver cancer, but those, you know, those categorizations are really based on the, like the tissue from which the tumor arose and not necessarily the molecular characterization of the tumor. And so what's kind of neat is that a lot of times within tumor types, you know, like within an ovarian cancer, you see the same genetic patterns or within a set of tumors that may not be arising in the same tissue, you will see, you know, specific mutations that give rise to specific drug sensitivity. And one of the things that this modeling approach does is allows us to correlate genetics to therapeutic response. And so we can start to, you know, like find very specific patterns of combination sensitivities where in a, let's say, KRAS mutant tumor, uh, you have, you know, a sensitivity to a, a MEK inhibitor, let's say, that then gives rise to secondary sex sensitivity to another drug that would normally be, you know, not very cytotoxic, that wouldn't really have an effect in a normal cell. So you can create these, you know, tumor cell specific vulnerabilities by leveraging the effects of one drug, you know, in order to sensitize to a second. And those tend to fall into, you know, like set metabolic patterns and uh, into tumors that have you know, predispositions, whether they are being driven by the, the sort of location of the tumor or the genetics. Did that um, answer your, <laughs> the patterns yeah. question? Well, uh, maybe. So you're saying that certain drugs will push the tumor in a, in a certain direction metabolically, or it will predispose it to being affected by another drug? So, um, are these yeah, so, chemo I mean, drugs or what, uh, you know, what kind of drugs are you finding this with? So, yeah. So um, what we try to do, and I'm sorry, I probably should have said this at the beginning, you know, in response to your first question, maybe. Um, what we try to do is to be able to correlate the drugs that the patients would normally be given, right? So you had you very rightly pointed out, like don't all don't all patients have standard of care? We try to correlate the drugs in our screens with the drugs the patients might be receiving in the clinic anyway, or would be receiving in the clinic anyway. And, and there's some wiggle room there because different hospitals and different institutions would give different drugs in different settings. And so you know you just have to sort of there's a, a, a little bit of space to what standard of care is sort of changes depending on context, including the hospital you're at. But that said, the, you know, let's, if we focus on a genetic change, a specific drug, so a drug that targets, whether it's a, spe- a targeted inhibitor, something that targets a specific kinase, let's say, or a drug that is sort of thought of as a, you know, standard chemotherapeutic agent, like a platinum-based chemotherapy. Each of those drugs is going to impact a tumor cells in a different way and normal cells for that matter, based on the state of that tumor. So when you treat a KRAS mutant tumor, which has a certain metabolic and transcriptomic profile, you're going to, that any given drug will push that tumor in a certain direction. And whether or not the drug is effective, you can at times leverage those changes to specifically target tumors with a second drug. So you're layering on a combination of, and so over the last, I don't know, two decades, more and more in the clinic, rather than, you know, just trying to 
generate more and more specific targeted inhibitors, what people have done is tried to layer in multiple approaches to sort of expose tumor vulnerabilities and susceptibilities to, to therapies that they wouldn't normally be susceptible to. So the example of a MEK inhibitor is actually a really nice one in that MEK inhibition is a KRAS, which is upstream of MEK in the oncogenic signaling pathway, drives a whole lot of tumors. But because it's such a fundamental pathway, just even in normal cells, you can't inhibit it without also creating a toxicity for normal cells. So you don't want to hurt your normal cells, obviously. And so one of the things you can do is use those, you know, targeted agents to sensitize tumor cells to a second drug in a way that a normal cell wouldn't be sensitized so that you can leverage the changes you see being driven by drug A, in this case, a MEK inhibitor, to target tumor cells specifically with a, with a second compound and try to create these synthetic vulnerabilities where you're driving the sensitivity of the tumor cell using drug A to make the tumor sensitive to drug B in a way that wouldn't happen in a normal state. Well, I mean, if tumors are supposed to be very heterogeneous, uh, will any one drug do anything to all the cells? Or do you have to use cocktails? Or what, you know, what's the thought? So, I mean, there's certainly heterogeneity in it, and it really is very tumor and tumor type specific. So, you know, if you look at sequencing data from a lung cancer patient with, you know, a, a driver mutation in EGFR, you would see, you know, the dominant clones in that patient would all have, you know, a very similar uh, mutational spectra. And then when you treat with targeted agents that target that mutation, you would find that subpopulations grow out that have a different mutation in, in the same gene. And there's really nice work that shows that tumors can basically infinitely go through this recursive cycle where you treat with targeted agents, and then the next clone grows out. That is only using a single agent, right? Like at any given moment in that cycle, you're always using sort of the next EGFR inhibitor. One of the nice things about approaches that use multiple therapeutics and don't just use them like in a shotgun approach, like let's hit as many different clones as we can, but are in fact leveraging the metabolic or, or genomic landscape of, of individual tumors is that you're changing the way that the cells receive that second drug. So whether you're, you know, sort of regardless of which EGFR mutation and there are definitely nuances there, right? So I, I'm getting into way too broad statements. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show you're going to have a very similar activation spectra. You're by activating EGFR with your mutation, the tumor is going to look a certain way. So the transcriptome of that tumor will have certain components to it, regardless of the specific mutation driving EGFR activity. And so when you use a specific inhibitor, you're only hitting the tumors that have that specific mutation. But when you use a combination approach that is targeting these drug-induced vulnerabilities, you're getting around that problem by hitting the pathway rather than hitting the oncogenic insult. And so 
one of the things that, that we learned sort of early in targeted therapies is that the targeted therapies that really work are the ones that are targeting a sort of a tumor specific event that doesn't have sort of that type of wiggle room. So like the BCR able fusions that drive some tumors are unique chromosomal fusion events that when you create the kinase inhibitors that target them, what you're doing is creating an, an inhibitor that is specific to the the tumor. And similarly, mm. what we're trying to do is leverage these combination approaches to say, okay, we want to find something that's specific to tumor treatment. So we want to use drug A, whatever it is, and its impact on the tumor to identify a tumor specific, you know, vulnerability that we can exploit with drug B. And so practically speaking, the way we do that is just by running combination drug screens, right? If you take combinations of two drugs and run enough of them, you find what kills tumors, but doesn't kill normal cells. But then computationally, you know, and using genomics data, you can start to identify those patterns. And so in the short term, you wind up generating these data sets where you would find combinations of drugs that you would want to test in a standard clinical trial. And long term, from that same, those same data sets, you get to sort of you get insight into the mechanism by which it's happening. And so you can refine the drugs and the targeting um, and even the patient population. So you can start well, to ask well, what, what's, what's an the example best of a drug for of a pathway. Yeah. What's an example of a pathway? What does the pathway do? Oh. What happens when it's inhibited? I mean, what, what's an, an example here? Yeah, no problem. Sorry. Okay. So if you think about um, a normal cell sitting in your body, it needs sometimes to grow. Sometimes it needs to just sort of sit and hang out. It has a normal cell phenotype. And so one of the things that tumors do is start to alter the behavior of normal cells. So before a, a tumor becomes a tumor, the cell cells mutate and start to activate what we call signaling cascades that control different elements of how cells behave. So for example, the insulin signaling cascade, because everyone thinks of, of insulin as a, is a pretty commonly thought of molecule in the body. So when you eat in a normal cell, you're, you eat sugar, your pancreas you know, sees that the, your blood sugar goes up and releases insulin. So cells with insulin receptor, which is a, a cell surface receptor, bind insulin and it activates a signaling cascade downstream of insulin. It creates a, it's basically a complex game of telephone where cells take that external signal and say, hey, there's lots of sugar around. And they then send the transporters that they need, um, in this case, the glute transporters, to the cell surface to import more glucose. And they start to change the way the cells are, are metabolically active to, to switch to a glycolytic program so that they are going to use the, are prepared to use the glucose that's about to come in. And so in a, in a normal cell, mitogenic signals, you know, go through. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes go through these pathways to say, hey, it's time to grow. It's time to, you know, make more uh, nucleotides. It's, they behave normally. And so what happens in cancer is they, the tumors sort of short circuit some of these signaling cascades. So they say in the case of insulin, tumors need energy, sugar to grow. So by turning on or mutating one of the, the genes that, that encodes one of the proteins within that pathway, you can say, you know, make that cell think that it is always in, an environment where there's insulin so that it thinks that its body is always saying, bring in more, bring in more sugar uh, so that we can use it so that we can grow. And so signaling pathways in the context of cancer are a way to, to sort of organize the, our thoughts about how tumors acquire their oncogenic components. So the way that they sort of get what they need to grow and sustain hyperprolific 
proliferative growth. But then from a therapeutic side, it's also how we can target you know, specific alterations or specific components of what makes a tumor a tumor. So uh, in the case that I just gave you of insulin signaling, insulin signals through insulin receptor and then PI3 kinase, which then impacts glucose uptake and cell proliferation and cell survival, um, you can have lots of you know, different ways to both activate that pathway. So you know, many of the receptor tyrosine kinases of which insulin receptor would be a member um, are mutated in cancer. So EGFR is another example. And I just use that as an example of what gets mutated in lung cancer. All activate sort of different components of normal cell apparatus in order to become tumors. And so when we want to target tumor cells, frequently when you talk about sort of targeted inhibitors and targeted therapy, what you're talking about are molecules that or therapeutic agents that try to inhibit or disrupt in some way those those signals so that the tumors you know can behave more like normal or lose a, a you know their growth advantage and, and are sort of tricked into dying depending so you're on trying to downregulate certain pathways that have been upregulated by by cancer yeah you're trying to turn off or rebalance or re-establish homeostasis in pathways that have been disrupted by and you know in that case we're talking about you know like mutation or you know some some genetic event though not always well, if there's a mutation and there's genetic events, can you do anything to cause the mutation to, uh, you know, the mutated cells to first of all die or to mutate back? Not so much with the mutate back, although people are trying that. But you can do lots of things to try to make them die. And you can, again, target them, you know, for what makes them different. Or you can try to use the tools we have therapeutically to make them susceptible to therapies that normal cells won't be susceptible to in the same way. So one of the real issues we have is that like when you when you try to target pathways that are sort of fundamental to normal cell activity, for example, insulin signaling, you wind up with, you know, evolution has created these feedbacks and, and insulating components that prevent those drugs from being as effective as you might want them to be, because you can't give huge amounts of a PI3 kinase inhibitor without also affecting that person's, you know, glucose homeostasis throughout their whole body. So you, you give a drug and it's not just hitting the tumor, it's hitting everything. And so what we try to do and and the approach that we try to take is to identify ways in which the tumors are different and exploit those. And for the most part, because of the the fact that it's the same fundamental pathways that that allow for regular cells to grow and thrive and for tumors to grow and thrive, that we really have to 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 sort of be clever about the ways we identify tumor-specific vulnerabilities as compared to approaches that would be uniformly toxic. So does anyone know what causes or what, what gives a, a cell the ability to, you know, to have a mutation that allows it to survive with that mutation? I mean, it really depends on the, uh, the cell, the cell type. And, and I mean, the answer we'll is make one up. Sure. A com- a very common mutation. So, I mean, in so, a cell that's well understood is, does anyone know the mechanism by which that would happen? I mean, there, there are lots of mechanisms by which it would happen, I guess, as part of my problem. But yeah, sure. So for example, you're out in the sun and you're exposed to radiation through sunlight. And so that, uh, you know, directly impacts your DNA and creates a, a change that normally your cells should be able to repair, even just cells replicating. Every time you copy, think about the, your DNA as millions upon millions of letters, right, of code, it's codons that have to be copied every time a cell is, is copied. So from the time you're born, uh, you know, you're conceived as a single cell to the time you're, you know, a, an adult, you've literally undergone trillions of these replicative cycles and copied your genome trillions of times. So with, with that, just stochastically, you know, if you estimate that every time you copy 
copy DNA, you're going to have some error rate, whether it be one in a thousand or one in 10,000 or one in 20,000, you know, over time, those mutations can pretty much fall anywhere in the genome and they can be deleterious or they cannot. What makes a tumor, you know, a tumor is that when those random events fall into places where they provide a growth advantage to the cell. So, you know, if you mutate, for example, KRAS, uh, which is another oncogenic signaling protein, you would potentially observe an increased growth rate. And so the, though it's only one of, you know, billions of cells in your body, the, that cell then is sort of, you know, is primed to expand more than the rest of the cells around it. And then because it's also replicating faster, it's opportunity for incorporating more DNA damage or more, more mutations also increases. So you wind up with these sort of steam, steamroller effects where, you know, mutation begets mutation. And that can happen. There are any number of reasons from smoking to being a, you know, a germline carrier of of a DNA damage repair pathway to, you know, just sun exposure. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. How does a mutation beget another mutation? What's the mechanism? If if we just look at it as cell division, right? If you're growing faster, if every time you copy your your genome, you have an error rate, whatever that rate is. Well, it's low and there's supposed to be error correction. That's significant. Yeah, yeah, but... Right. Once you've once you've acquired a single mutation that is has a growth advantage, right? So now you're talking about a cell that has a mutation that just stochastically occurred, but is, you know, now has an activating mutation in EGFR. So you're now growing faster as that cell. So now instead of one of those cells, there are four of those cells for every one replicative cycle of the cells around it, you then wind up with this snowball effect, right? Where you now have four times the number of expected cells that are carrying the mutation. And each of those is is you know, multiplying exponentially, where each of them is still susceptible to the same mutation, background mutation, and that's without smoking or, you know, sun exposure or any of the other things that can create a lot more damage than than sort of our normal error rate. I mean, but supposedly the body's very good at error correcting, otherwise we would be dead, you know, way before we get to be 70 or 80, let's yeah, say. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. So, no, right? so, you know, you're always running along that line of the cell not properly dividing because of these mutations. I mean, it's like a, it's like a car with, I guess, damage in it. You know, at some point the thing's going to break down. And I would think that these mutated cells, there would be trade-offs. So they're more likely to, uh, you know, to not successfully replicate or die, especially as they proliferate, especially as they mutate more and more. Absolutely. Or are these mutations somehow just super successful for some reason? No, no, no. I, I mean, I think it's really important to keep all of this in an evolutionary text, right? So for every mutation that occurs, you have multiple mechanisms by which they should be corrected both within the cell and then, you know, surveillance. So, you know, like, for example, if you just mutate KRAS, which I used as the example before, what actually winds up happening in the context of no other mutations is frequently senescent. So the cells just stop growing because they like can't handle just that mutation. Um, and so you really need to have multiple events occurring that impact different phenotypes from cell survival, proliferation, senescence, immune detection to get, you know, enough of a change to, to really have a tumor form. You know, it's just in the context of, of looking at, you know, like, why does a mutation occur? You know, there are any number of reasons, but they do and, and they are low enough frequency. So there's some really nice work from the late 90s, early 2000s that went to the trouble of finding, you know, benign tumors in um, autopsy cases. And for the most part, everybody uh, that they, that they did these autopsies on had, you know, small lesions that were non-metastatic and weren't a big deal that were not their cause of death. But, you know, you just have so many cells and your body undergoes so, so many different insults uh, through time that, you know, for some 
percentage of people that results in a, you know, in a, in a tumor. And, you know, for the really unfortunate subset, those tumors can't be treated effectively. So when people talk about uh, tumor being heterogeneous, what, what is the nature of that heterogeneity? Is it heterogeneity of mutation of, you know, of the precise amount of up or down regulation of a certain gene? I mean, what's, yeah, you know, I mean, what so, does heterogeneity look like yes. to you? So, I mean, all of those things. So people wind up using that word, particularly in common, you know, verbiage a little too much, I think, because like heterogeneity to me really means you know, a, a bunch of different genotypes, right? Like you're talking about genes, that's the root of the word. But the way that people actually use it is just tumors have a bunch of different, you know, subpopulations within them. And they, people, different scientists, and for good reason, define those in different ways. So you can look at the, you know, the methylation patterns of different tumors and see that though they have very similar mutational spectra, that they have very different patterns of chromatin and, and what is what what DNA is actually being used, that they're like dif- differentiating in different ways. And so sometimes when they talk, when you talk about heterogeneity, what you're really talking about is different differentiation states. In other cases, you're just talking about different mutants. So like in EGFR, mutant lung cancer, which I used as an example before, you know, it's thought that the, you know, like there are a whole bunch of different clones within the tumor that contain different mutations. um, And that one of those clones tends to be dominant. So when we sequence it, what we see winds up being the dominant clone. But once we treat to, to remove that dominant clone, what you see, you know, grow out in the next round is tumor that is derived from a, a subpopulation that was already present in that original. So you know, heterogeneity is, is that complex. And that's why when I was describing sort of our targeting mechanisms, right, like the way that we think about targeting, we're thinking about it as, you know, as pathway activation, as how do you treat the way that this tumor cell is behaving, rather than necessarily trying to treat the specific alteration, because in you know the lessons of the last 20 years have basically been that while there are some very good examples of being able to target a specific mutation, by and large, that that type of targeting is only effective for short windows. And that after that, what, you know, the, the longer lasting therapies tend to, you know, shut down the pathway rather than just shutting down the oncogenic insult. When you process tumors, do you take them apart or do you try to preserve the 3D arrangement of you know, mutations and heterogeneity, because I think that would give some insight as to, you know, how the structure of a tumor evolves, a solid one. No, it absolutely, so what it absolutely does the lineages look like? No, no, that's, that's, that it's totally true. So we, there are lots of models or not lots, but there are several models that try to keep tumor architecture intact. So there are these slice culture models, MIT and the Broad have a really nice set of them. They're great models for a lot of questions. Their scale is relatively limited, right? Because if you have to maintain tumor architecture, you have to, it means you have to like either only use the primary tumor from which your sample is derived or you, and that would limit the number of drugs that you can test and the number of assays you can run or you have to grow all of those components and make sure that they are maintained in the right proportions. But why, so, why can't you do single cell sequencing and look for mutations so, and stuff like that, uh, you know, in a 3D view of, let's say, um, if I assume a tumor is a sphere, yeah, you know, has anyone yeah. done that reconstituted spatially? What do all the mutations and changes look like? Yeah, I don't know how well it's done in 3D, um, but certainly in, a, in, a, in these slices, right? You can take a slice and you can run single cell sequencing and see what the interactions are. It's sort of a chicken or egg problem, right? If you want to know what the heterogeneity of a tumor looks like, you can absolutely do that. You can do it on the single cell level. You can create really nice maps of ligand receptor interactions so that you know which cells in the tumor microenvironment are interacting which with other cells. The problem with that, those, are, you know, from a functional modeling standpoint is that you can't have that data and simultaneously ask which cells in that population 
are or are not responding to drugs in a, in a you know in a high throughput manner. So you can know all of that, and those are great approaches. They're just not. They are great at telling you what the heterogeneity of the tumor might be and how the tumor cells differ from one another. They are not necessarily good at telling you what you would what drug you would want to give that specific tumor. Since right, but if you, large, if we you can't have sign those, they don't have a certain cancer, and you have uh, and you've looked at the you know, the 3D morphology of the of the cells and the patterning, do you see over and over again similar patternings or is it so heterogeneous, so apparently random that each tumor is completely structured differently? No, I mean, like, right, tumors are, it's just like fingerprints to some degree, but they're similar, but not the same, right? So, you know, you definitely see the same patterns. You can compare, you know, you can take single cell analysis of, of a set of tumors, let's say breast tumors, and see how, you know, what makes them the same and what makes them different. And you can see how, you know, specific genetic mutations alter not just the tumor cells, but also the tumor microenvironment, right? Like how the tumor interacts with its environment is also predicated, you know, or at least impacted based on what mutations that tumor carries. But it is hard to, uh, and I have not seen anyone as of yet, be able to sort of correlate those heter- heterogeneous sort of map elements at that sort of single cell resolution with a you know a functional validate because we just we just don't have that we just don't have that refinement in our drugs we don't know even on the bulk whole exome data subset right if you're looking at metastatic disease the vast majority of tumors don't have targeted therapies that can be applied to them even at the even at the bulk scale so we're nowhere near the capacity of trying to target individual subclones you know for the most part that's not to say that we don't have you know specific drugs and specific settings where we can't identify different clones that will be sensitive to different let's say EGFR mutant you know targeted therapies but that data is not currently functional for trying to target because we just don't have that that level of precision in our therapeutics and and really but if you, if you tend if you tend to see, you know, certain mutations happening on like, let's say the periphery of the ball and some tend to happen in the center of it. And you know that a certain drug, let's, let's say that on the periphery, there's some kind of massive upregulation of some pathway and it's typical. Why can't you know then, okay, if someone's going to have a tumor like this, the first of the drugs that we'll hit it with will target these, these cells on the, on the periphery of it. And we know it'll downregulate this particular pathway because they tend to, you know, express that pathway very highly. And that's at least our first step. And we can expect to see a shrinkage of it, you know, to a certain level. And then after that, we'll probably uncover the next layer in. And those have these kind of, you know, is there any... What you're describing is really, those are not usually mutational spectra, but rather functional spectra, right? So as you move into a poorly perfused tumor, you'll turn on hypoxic, you know, there'll be a hypoxic region within a tumor. And so you'll see a pattern of, you know, HIF induction because the tumor has no oxygen, has lower oxygen level. You don't tend to see the same sort of layering of mutational status and the the type of, of sort of differentiation that you're talking about, that type of tumor cell differences are tend to be more plastic. So while you could target and effectively treat the outside component, the that doesn't you know, like you don't get a uniform cell killing and you don't necessarily, and there are certainly good models that try to do that. Um, You know, looking at the relative sensitivity to the, you know, outside versus inside. And some of it is, you know, heterogeneity of of tumors, but it's more just physical location and and proximity to other elements that drive a certain transcriptomic profile um, and sort of a, a level of activity of whatever pathway. So, you know, it's, it's not a bad idea. It's, it's, and it's, it, it's something that people certainly study it's not 
you know, in practical terms and particularly in a clinical trial type setting, we can look at cells on the scale of days and see that we try to kill that outer ball. But when we treat patients, we don't get anywhere near that resolution in, in an actual clinical trial. And so those types of approaches in general don't get used. And it's really hard to get drug companies to, to try to run sort of logically based trials where you would target things sequentially because drug A induces drug B. You know, it's much easier to get them to take two drugs and put them in together. In part because patients more generally, like once you release them out into the open, aren't super compliant with schedules. So if you are trying to induce sequential changes uh, with multiple dr- a multi-drug regimen, you know, you may have a hard time monitoring and making sure people are doing it, you know, appropriately. But you also seem to be saying that uh, mutations don't necessarily translate reliably phenotypically. I'm not saying that so much as I'm saying that, that we don't have good drug identification for, you know, for some, for some alterations we do, but for patients, right. When, when we first started, like, and I think, and it's important that my expertise really falls into the sort of the outliers. It's the people that we don't have good care for. And, and that's an important component because if you are a HER2 amplified breast cancer patient, we have really good drugs targeting HER2 amplified. And so within the, the scope of people who are, are in need of some clinical options, options that are better. If you run whole exome sequencing on that, the, the data can vary, but it's somewhere in the you know, 5% range are, you know, based on their sequencing, can you apply a drug that is actually you know, FDA approved and would be used in that context? You know, it's, you're talking very, very small numbers of tumors for which the genomics are directly associated with a, a specific drug. And that's why it's so important to try to understand all of these issues that you bring up, heterogeneity and tumor context, um, because they really do have huge impact on resistance to therapy and, you know, the way we might think about modeling or approaching treating those drugs. But it is, you know, like, we're just, we're just so primitive in a lot of ways in the way that we actually target mutations or use drugs, leverage the drugs that we have in our toolkit, because mostly because the way, you know, clinical trials are funded and developed, right? Like if you you know, have to work within the constructs of a of an individual drug that limits you a lot. And if you need, if you want two drugs and they both need to be coming from the same company, that's also a limiting factor. And it's it the NCI has a bunch of programs to try to address that and try to help people, you know, create more logically designed clinical Wait, trials. But so is that restrictive that what you you would have to use two drugs from the same maker? I mean, it's just it's not that you'd have to. It's just right if you're a drug company and you want, and somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I have a clinical trial. I'm going to make you, you know, like your drug and this other drug, you would much rather it be two of your own drugs. And then the data sharing and the like toxicity issues, because there's a a sort of a liability to it, right? Like by the time drugs to clinical trials, you've already invested so much in them. You don't want a combined toxicity to sort of tarnish the reputation of your drug, at least in part. So drug companies in general are very resistant to the idea of putting in combinations with another company's drug. It's not to say that it never happens, but in instances, it's my understanding that like big pharma companies will would rather buy a startup to get access to the second drug than run a trial where they're exposed to the liability of the second drug causing a toxicity that, you know, just they didn't know about and didn't have. Because, you know, like if you've got two drugs with the same company and like companies are companies, they're both going to blame each other, I, I think is part of it. Um, historically, those are very hard trials to get to run. It's not that they never happen, but they're hard to hard to hard to push. And as a sort of a, a young faculty member trying to to translate ideas from a functional genomics pipeline into the clinic, we're pretty quickly dissuaded from from going that route when we talk to to industry partners. It's just not something they're excited about. So you're only looking for new drugs or even existing ones 
you're hobbled by, uh, I guess, no, the fact so, that only so, pharma can afford these trials. And No, you know, no, they, so there's a bunch of, you are, in fact, there's there's still room to play, or play is the wrong word, but there's room to, to, to work with everyone. But typically... The it is much easier if a drug is off patent, right? If there are generic versions of it, then then you can run a trial where you get company A to provide their drug, the experiment, like the the new drug, the targeted agent, and then you use a standard chemotherapeutic that is is generic or a, an older inhibitor that's been in a lot of people. Because once you've you know like if you take a drug that's been in millions of people, then you're you've de-risked it because it's already. FDA approved, it's already making its money. Anything the drug company gets above that, I think would probably be seen as like a, an added benefit, but there they've, you know, the risk is, is somewhat ameliorated by the fact that it's already sort of out there. It's when you take compounds that are cutting edge compounds, two of them, and try to put them together, you really have, would have a very hard time, you know, getting them into the same trial for that. But what about not- older drugs that, uh, you know, you could have, uh, off-label uses or looking for those? Yeah. Do so the, drug those, companies the, care or no? No. They, so there you get, that works a lot better. There's a lot more, uh, it is much easier to do those types of trials where you, where you take something off, you know, off patent or, you know, like an established drug that has a, a, you know, a generic version so that anyone can make it and then, and then add that to whatever you want more or less, you know, provided that there's, you know, ample preclinical evidence. Those are much easier trials to work. Well, what about a drug that uh, does have a patent on it, but the use that you want to use it for is a bit different evade the patent or the patent covers any possible use of a drug that's definitely out of my area of expertise but I, my understanding is that if you've got a novel use that you can you can patent that yourself but again if you need them for the drug um if you need the drug company for the drug or to fund the trial that becomes difficult right if if they don't want you to use their compound it can be very hard to get a trial done what do you think is going to be uh, i don't know in the near future do you think there's any headway that you're making that's going to be a big breakthrough or is it a slow grind tumor by tumor or what's what's it look like for you? So I think that like, I've actually been thinking about this a lot, you know, in, I guess, because the new year and the whole 2020 haven't been such a hard year for everybody. I actually think there's a lot of hope, right? Like the more, there are more and more groups and sort of genetic platforms where tumors are getting sequenced at higher and higher rates so that it becomes more and more common for patients everywhere to have actual sequencing data available for their tumor, which means that we have much bigger response data set. So you can start to look at within populations, how even the drugs that are, you know, easy standard of care are, are used and how they, they segregate within different genomic, uh, you know, mutational spectra. So you can start to like imagine, you know, in the next five years, um, lots of places where with just a little bit of, of functional modeling, you could make big changes in the way patients receive care, you know, from there, there are many clinical contexts where there are four or five drugs, because there are just so many more drugs that are being FDA approved in the last 10 years that are targeted agents, they're approved against the old standard of care. And now you have four drugs that are all approved for frontline use in, let's say, liver cancer. So, you know, like, I think, as we build out those models, and as as more and more patients receive these drugs, we're able to, to more and more customize therapy. So I think that there's a lot of hope and a lot of you know, significant potential, not just for, you know, these advanced cancer cases, but also for sort of standard of care improvements where patients who would have had some toxicity issues, but like, we're just taking the, the regimen that was always prescribed are going to see, you know, I- improved therapeutic options because the, m- the more options there are in each clinical space, the, the sort of more customized they can become for each patient. Um, and sort of the, 
the better we can do in terms of patient care. And that you know, you're just hoping to look at someone's tumor and they have four drugs possible, and you know you can maybe change the combination of them a little bit. And you think that'll work better than just what's being done right now? No, no, no. I think like I mean, th- I mean that too. But uh, I was more thinking like right, like if if there are four drugs available to you and you have a tumor that we we actually know what's what's wrong with your tumor, right? Like 20 years ago, if you had a tumor, we wouldn't know what the driving mutations were in that tumor. But now, you know, in, you know, with the Human Genome Project and, you know, you know, wide scale accessibility of, uh, of whole genome sequencing, whole exome sequencing, um, we can know, you know, with a decent amount of certainty, what mutational events are driving each individual tumor. And that means that if you've got patients who have four different standard of care options, you can start to stratify which options go with which patient just by, you know, accumulating that data and seeing how all the patients do on each of the different therapies without running big clinical trials, just by looking at the electronic health records. And if you start to pair that type of approach where you have really nicely annotated data sets that are, you know, coming directly from the clinic with, you know, good science that, that explains why some of these tumors are or are not uh, as sensitive to different therapies, I think you, you are able to, you know, we'll see that in the next five to 10 years that, you know, more and more cancer care will be personalized at, at the level of, you know, you know, your mutational status for a given tumor type. Um, and that just is a sort of a, a, a matter of numbers. Like you just need to have enough patients for which that data is available to make it all work out. Well, do you think that uh, with the current drugs available that, uh, you know, even understanding the mutational profile of someone's going to do much, or is it going to take, uh, you know, new drugs, or what do you think is going to take to actually make some headway? Well, so I, I mean, this goes back to sort of the approach that I was telling you about at the beginning. I really think that that what we need to do is 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 build on you know the the current paradigms where we know what's wrong with the tumor and what has changed and what is driving this sort of the the oncogenic state, and then use rational approaches that you know target specific mechanisms that are that that tumor is dependent. Um, and I think you know what we've learned from the last you know, however long, 10 years or so, uh, 20 years, has really been that that if you can find a tumor-specific vulnerability and push on it, you can exploit it. And that, you know, for many of these targeted therapies, we're, you know, not really hitting the, you know, the, the specific oncogenic component and that, you know, the med-chem components are getting much better so that more and more drugs are specific to a, a, a mutation, a mutated version of an enzyme rather than than just the the native version, more and more specificity so that like you actually see drugs on the market now that are targeting, you know, a specific mutant rather than the enzyme as it generally exists. And so the more we can do that, the easier it will be to treat patients. And so it's sort of a combination of both where we're going to see improve improvement just because we have more data and it's easier to do, but pairing genomics with, you know, response data really is going to improve care. Okay. Well, very good. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Get tabs on it. Um, I have a website that I should probably know off the top of my head, but it, I'm Googleable, uh, Hopkins at MSSM, uh, and it's the top hit, the Hopkins Lab. Okay. It's labs.icon.mssm.edu slash Hopkins Lab. That will tell them all about the research we're doing in a much more articulate fashion than I can do in a podcast. Sorry about that. No, you've done it. It's fine. You've done a good job. Well, ben, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Yep. Nice to talk to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.